0: Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today my guest is Leslie Ferguson. Leslie enjoyed a career as a high school English teacher and college writing instructor for two decades before relocating to San Diego to pursue work in the publishing industry. She holds an MFA in Creative Writing and an MA in English Literature from Chapman University. Currently, Leslie sits on the Board of Directors of the International Memoir Writers Association and she loves performing original stories and poems, which often center on hope and the consequences of trauma. As an editor and book doctor, one of Leslie's passions is helping other writers tell their own stories with courage and emotional honesty. Her multi-award winning debut memoir, When I Was Her Daughter, tells her story of madness, loss, and survival as a foster kid in the 1980s. Welcome Leslie.
1: Hi. Thank you. Thank you
0: for having me. I'm so happy you're here. And I feel like we connected, did we connect on social or like we just kept seeing each other's memoirs? I can't remember. Yes, correct. (laughs) Yeah, and then we got to meet back in May, I believe. I think it was May in San Diego.
1: Yeah, at the Wandering Words, where I knew you were going to be there, and that's... not a far drive for me. So I wanted to go see you and meet you. So I was fangirling. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh, it was so fun. So Michelle Bickley, she and a bunch of other memoirists and writers host Wandering Words in San Diego at different locations. And I announced that I was going, it was sort of the end of my book tour for my second book. And then you said you're going to try to come. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet you in person. And I already knew you were going to be my guest. But this was such an opportunity to talk to you and just sort of hug you
1: yes it was really great when I saw you you were already talking to somebody you know so I kind of held back a little bit, and then I approached you, and I wasn't sure if you were gonna be like, um, wait, you know, excuse me, stalker, or if you were gonna recognize oh me gosh. right away, <laughs> and your face lit up, and it was yeah. just like a, this mutual connection, and it was so great to finally meet you.
0: Oh, it was so great to meet you, too, and I felt like I met a sister, you know, Aww, like a, yeah. a sister in memoir, a sister in childhood. Yeah, so can you share a little bit about when I was her daughter?
1: Yes, so it's a story about being the daughter of a mentally ill mother and in the book I highlight some of her episodes of psychosis and the danger she put my brother and me in. And it's also about my desperation to win her love and figure out who I was in a world that seemed so contradictory. So um, it then goes on to my journey through foster care in the 1980s in Los Angeles and how I was rescued and ultimately became an adult adoptee.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you find a lot of books that told stories like yours when you were thinking about
1: writing your memoir? You know I always tried to seek out memoirs that kind of spoke to me in a, a way that I felt like I would see myself or understand myself a little better by reading them. You know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to feel less alone. And you know, there are, there were some, like when, um, like The Glass Castle, for example, even Running With Scissors, um, a little bit show dealing with a parent who is less than stable. Mm. And I, I knew my story was unique for many reasons. And I kept hearing people tell me that there wasn't really a story out there that was like mine. Not that approached memoir from the child's point of view, going through everything with so much detail and so much vivid imagery. So Mm -hmm. uh, I was excited to see how I would approach the story and after revising and finally getting it to where I felt like it was working, I was really excited to see how it came together.
0: Yes, yes. And did you have a sense when you began, or before when you were dreaming of the book, or I know we'll talk a little bit later about how long it took you, but did you know about what period of time you wanted to cover? Did you have a sense
1: of that? Well, I started just writing scenes, just writing down what I remembered. And at one point, the book, I I thought I was going to stop it at a, a pivotal point in my actual story and I spoke with a couple of editors and they're like, no, you need to tell the whole story. You need to cut out major chunks and condense, (laughs) cut out a lot, condense it so that the whole story is told in one book.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, because there's a a part in the book where my brother and I are taken away Mm -hmm. from our mother um, the police come to our door and they take us away and originally I had decided to end the book there and then book two was mm-hmm. going to be my journey through foster care and getting rescued and then dealing with a little bit of the struggles I've had in my adult life mm-hmm. largely because of the kind of childhood that I had
0: mm-hmm. so
1: um, I'm really glad that I got that advice to make the story what it is and um, I yeah I, I was really happy with, with it in the end. I didn't think it was gonna work that way because it was just so long. But when mm. I cut out the right things, it became just right.
0: Mm. Isn't that so challenging to figure out what we can do without and what needs yes. to stay?
1: And I think as authors, as writers and memoirists, we can't always see that because everything seems equally important. Mm-hmm. And I was told by an editor who I admire that I had a lot of scenes that kept showing the same thing. And even though I thought they were important or unique in their own way, we didn't need more scenes of my biological mom's psychosis and kind of going through the loop. Already, I feel like there is quite a bit of that and the reader is like, okay, another story about this horrifying situation. When do we get to something good? So Mm -hmm. it was really useful to see sections that weren't as powerful for her that -hmm. i could cut that i'd always held on to like my Mm -hmm. my darlings Mm
0: -hmm. right so in a way it this is really important because these things happen these memories have stayed with you but not all of them uh made it to the end of the the draft and to the last revision and can you share a little bit about how you went about choosing the scenes that stayed? How did you know? Uh, You know, you had some help from an editor. How did you make the call that this scene with your mom behaving this way is going to stay and this one is going to go? I
1: definitely used my editor's lens of this story. This particular scene isn't showing us anything different. It's not helping you tell the underlying story. And the scenes I kept, I feel kept me on the trajectory of telling the story in a natural arc where we have Mm. this rising action where things are kind of building and even maybe sometimes ad nauseum. Mm. But that that was really important to me because I wanted the reader to feel almost like they were drowning in it because that's what it was like. That's what it Mm. felt like to be there. And the scenes that I kept all come back to being able to touch on the theme and touch on these the idea of my desperation for her love my feelings of loss of of where i was in the world and who i was and my guilt for the decisions that i made or didn't make so Mm -hmm. if there was a scene that i kept that i thought was really interesting like for example a scene where my biological mom had in the middle of the night heard voices, so she went out into the backyard of my grandparents' house where we were living, she climbed a telephone pole as high as she could go until she hit a hot wire, got zapped and fell into the the flower bed below and my grandfather found her the next morning. She had a scar on her forehead somehow Hmm. from that. And so I have a scene of that and I realized after all the other scenes I had, That was just another scene of kind of the same thing of Mm -hmm. here is my mom doing something that is so wacky Mm -hmm. and my brother and I are experiencing it and don't know what to do with it. But there was nothing new in that scene that really allowed me to connect to the deeper themes of what the story is really about on that meaningful level. That's hard. I mean, that that's and that sort of is um that's sort of
0: a signal to anyone who hasn't read the book yet that this is exactly how high the stakes are and how (laughs) strong the tension is when you are able as a memoirist to remove that scene because you already have so much else there that is resonating on this really powerful and scary level and so on the flip side of that did you have any trouble selecting scenes and ways to show what was okay about your mom or why you needed her
1: near you? I didn't have trouble with that because th- there was that always that underlying current of even though she's putting me in danger, even though she's saying these awful, scary, frightening things, even though she'd beaten me senseless, um, I still loved her and I felt her softness and I craved her being close to her and when mm. things weren't calm and, and fine, even a amidst all the chaos. If I could just lie next to her and she would caress my forehead and play with my hair. And so I included those moments because they did bring the levity to what I was feeling. It was the situation of I I feel like something's wrong. Mom is dragging us through all this stuff and I'm tired and I'm scared and I just want it to end. Mm. But there were these times of, of great sweetness and I didn't know at the time that her illness was what it was because nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. And But I could feel that she loved me even though I, I felt it, like she was putting me in danger and she wanted to kill me. At some point, I realized that she did love me and that's why she wanted to kill me. And that yeah. makes no sense, <laughs> yeah. especially to a child. Oh, and wow. so coming to terms with it, I think for years, you know, I just denied. I didn't think about it. I I had to pretend like I was in my new family and like my other family and my other mother never Mm -hmm. existed. And Mm -hmm. that that allowed me to function, that kept me safe and able to move forward in a way, even though it was holding all that trauma inside of me, it was Mm -hmm. keeping it there for a time when I was ready to deal with it.
0: Mm -hmm. It's so much. You know, on that note, I was wondering, Could you read from the excerpt we discussed? And and maybe you can center the excerpt in some time so it's clear how old you are and what's preceded this.
1: Sure. So this excerpt is, I'm nine years old and my brother and I have been out on the streets with our mom because she believes that everybody has been programmed against her. She believes that the government is after us primarily the Russians are coming to America and they're going to capture us. They're going to do these awful things to us before killing us. And this scene takes place one day when I've just kind of had enough and we go to my aunt's house for some respite and I think, okay, great. We can relax. We can sit somewhere soft. We don't have to be, always outside, walking the streets, or in the parks, or wondering what's next. And mom basically says, no, we're not staying. So this scene is what happens next. Mm -hmm. Mom slung her purse over her shoulder and raced to the door. I didn't get up. I'm not going. Hearing myself say the words aloud frightened me. Maybe I did have a choice in the matter. I could refuse to go back out on the streets. Mom grabbed my wrist. Her wrist scars gleamed in the warm light. The truth of mom's illness screamed. She'd cut herself over decade-old scars. If her illness had kept her prisoner for so many years, would it ever let her go? All the destructive things she'd done, all the strange, frightening things she'd said, They knocked at my sense of logic. Going with mom when I could stay behind suddenly seemed like the stupidest, scariest choice I could make. I pressed my feet into the floor. No, I'm not going and you can't make me. William, you should stay too. Stay with me, please. I stared into his eyes. Rebellion pounded in me, but so did hope. Hope that I might be able to change mom's mind. No, I'm going with mom. William said, grape jelly on his cheeks, flickering as he spoke. Fine, leave me here by myself. If I made him feel guilty, his conscience might wake up. And if he stayed, Mom would too. I knew she would never leave both of us. She would never leave William. He was Mom's favorite, and she was his. While I knew it to be true, I needed to disprove it. So there I was with my big mouth and my unrealistic demands, ruining everything. I was the outcast fighting every step of the way. I'm waiting here for Auntie Phyllis. I folded my arms across my chest. She'll take care of me. Mom clutched my other wrist, and I yanked both from her grip with one violent burst of force. She sighed and moved to the door. Suit yourself, but I think you're about to be very disappointed. Mom and William and two trash bags of belongings left, and the door clicked shut behind them. I pumped my feet against the floor, letting the rhythm distract me as I licked salty tears from my lips. Sitting on the pine bookshelf that held Auntie's glass menagerie, a fox with a white-tipped tail stared at me with dead eyes. With each pump of my legs, the chair clicked, and the storm of reality welled up in me higher and higher. Had I ever been this alone? I waited there for hours. Then the lock turned with a clack. And I shuddered. It was Auntie Phyllis. She jumped at the sight of me. I must have startled her, sitting there so quietly, unexpectedly. Standing in the doorway with big eyes, she stared like she didn't believe I was real. She shut the door behind her and dropped her purse on the desk before approaching me. She asked where William and Mom were. Maybe she thought something had happened and William and Mom were dead. She bent to hug me, and I stood to meet her, putting my arms around her. They're gone, I said. I stayed here to wait for you. She let me go and backed away. A massive frizzy hair surrounded her questioning face. I wanted to sink into her until I had no more tears, until I was all cleaned out and new again. Then she could be my mom and we would live there happily ever after. She'd let me color in her thick Disney coloring book that was off limits to people who couldn't color within the lines. She'd love me and tickle me and I'd laugh until I forgot about everything that came before. I can't take you. She shook her head. I have to work. I can't afford it. Gears and her eyes turned and stopped getting stuck on every excuse not to take me. I'll be good. I promise. I'll stay out of your way. I'll be as quiet as a mouse and I'll even do the dishes. She disconnected from me and lit a cigarette. Thank you.
0: Oh, gosh. Um, what can I say about this? There's so much I want to talk about. And I, I really, what struck me this time when you read it was how you talk about your big mouth and you're ruining everything and being an outcast. And how how have you come to grips with, with that identity of yourself? Did you, is that part of you that feels like you weren't good enough? It's, is that part of you gone for the most part or do you still struggle with it
1: i still struggle with it i think that it's something that will always be with me and it's part of my journey in this life if there are others (laughs) Mm. that um, i am i'm working on that i'm working on how to find my own fulfilment and see my own strength and resilience and what I have to offer. I think that, you know, in this world, above all else, what people want is to feel safe and feeling loved is part of that. Feeling important, feeling needed is a part of that. And it's been, you know, this lifelong journey of trying to reinforce the feeling of self-care genuine interest and fulfillment to find what i love and become good at it and that's the role that school played and sports mm-hmm. and then when i was a teacher i tried i tried to be so good at what i did and that feeling of insecurity or feeling like i'm not enough even though logically mm-hmm. i can i can say yeah i know look at all look at who i am look at what i've done i i've come through so much i've been so strong and it's still, it's like, it's a part of my DNA now. It's a Mm -hmm. part of who I am, not what I believe it's just in me. And I think this is a very important aspect of trauma for all trauma survivors is that it's like a part of our personality, um, more than that, right? It's like we were created because when we were traumatized, our brains changed. And now what we've experienced that was so hurtful and harmful is always there. And we could try to deny it we can try to move past it but it's still there because just like we can't take out a chromosome we can't take this trauma out all we can do is move forward and find ways to do what we love become good at it find people that reinforce feelings of of security and love and that feeling of being found that feeling of connecting Mm. Mm. And so that's, that's helped me. And, writing the, and you write a memoir that has <laughs> helped me. You know as much as it opened up the trauma and it made some of the wounds new again, it really helped me process so that I could close them up. and now I'm dealing with scar tissue and not reopening the wound again and again. And so writing the memoir has kind of closed a chapter on that, which mm-hmm. you know, I, could, I hoped that it would. But I was also scared for a number of reasons. Because once you finish the memoir, then what? Mm-hmm. Then does everything leave you? Are you done? Are you no longer that person? And do you forget the memories you've clung to, who you feel have made you who you are? So I think it's just a lifelong journey of trying every day to do things that, that make you feel good to yourself. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And I think you said in, in that so much, and something that I want to come back to is you talked about feeling safe, and I think that we all on a core level need to, the human need to feel safe, and we want to feel loved, and the security we need with our parents or our caregivers is vital to that, and without it, we just sort of, I'm going to speak for myself, and I think you here, we lose a part of ourselves. We miss something. We can't locate it because I feel like something I've learned in work I've done writing my memoir and also, of course, in therapy is that, I mean, for me, I feel like you always want as a child that caregiver or that mom entity to know where you are, to be watching and caring for you, and to be found, as you said. And that's what I really wanted to come back to is that found element. And I think those of us with insecure Childhood's insecure attachment, we, we don't have that sense of someone watching out for us. We didn't have it. And so it's really hard to believe that we are worth taking space up. You know, we're, that, that we existing is enough. Right,
1: right. Yeah. I'm, I think that it's so, such a profound thing because like when I think about my husband, you know, he doesn't have any of, any trauma from mm-hmm. childhood and he had very secure attachment to both of his parents and he often doesn't understand because he'll say, well, your childhood's over. Why are you still there? Why are you still focusing on it? Why don't you move on? Mm. And that's like saying, why don't you move on from the fact you have blue eyes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I can put in some brown contacts if I want, but still the eyes are blue and the trauma is still there. And that's, that's, part of us so I think this idea of reparenting the self has been very eye-opening for me and I had a therapist say you are looking to your boyfriend to fill every role he is not your mother your best friend your uh, therapist he is not all of these things he is just a man and that was really eye opening for me because I was looking outward. I was looking for everybody else and everything else to reflect back to me and to fill me and give me what I needed instead of looking for ways that I could fill all those roles, that I could mm. fill my own cup first. And, you know, we, we do need the best friend and the therapist and the mom figure. But we also need to be whole without relying on other people to fill the void that has been created. Right, but that's the paradox because so
0: many of us who have gone through something like this uh, in its different shades and forms don't, don't feel like we have the resources or what it takes to fill that right, and right. so it's such work to rebuild and to find and discover that. And on that note, there was this other paragraph that I selected about insecure attachment. I was wondering if you could read it and then talk
1: about that question I want to ask about it. Yeah, this uh, this scene or this little paragraph is after so much has happened, and I have been rescued in a sense, and for all intents and purposes, I should have been. I should have felt like everything was just great and if everything was so good now, why couldn't I reconcile that? Why, why was I still feeling the way I was feeling? Hmm. Even though I had a secure place to land, I was nervous and anxious all the time, worried about making mistakes and prompting the disapproval and disappointment of my parents who had made sacrifices to give me a full, stable life. I gorged myself kept secrets, and played basketball until it tired me out so I could sleep and not have to think about how fearful I felt. That's the thing about traumatic childhoods, they leave us empty, no matter how hard we try to fill ourselves up, our insecurity is too big to be sated. While I didn't think my parents would disown me, I thought they might stop loving me, and my newly constructed world would eventually come crashing down. Thank you. And this does speak to what we were talking about a moment
0: ago. And you you mentioned a little bit of the work you've done, but can you elaborate on how you managed to create security in your life now with your loved ones?
1: Yes. I I think that, oddly enough, and maybe not, maybe it's not odd, maybe it makes perfect (laughs) sense, I still feel, you know, that word triggered. I feel triggered and That word is such a buzzword now, and for years I never understood why I would respond a certain way to something someone did or said, and I've had to actively pay attention to situations so that I can respond rather than react. And to use a kind of a cool processing of a situation and focus on people mostly have good intentions. People didn't say that to try to harm me. This is my inner child feeling like she's not getting what she needs. This is my inner child speaking out out of hurt and anger and fear. And so what I try to do is give people the benefit of the doubt and think about my place in in the world my place in my own idea like the way that I have come to be and respond to things it stems from all those years of what I went through and having to react to survive but now those responses don't serve me because I am safe so I like grounding exercises I like journaling to remind myself that I am here and try to focus on the good aspects of what's happening or maybe well if somebody said something that made me feel frustrated or sad or lonely or hurt i think about what their intentions were why might they have said that that has nothing to do with me Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of learning how to cope and heal from trauma is reminding yourself heartily that it's not always about you (laughs) because when you are young and trying to survive these horrifying and experiences you're already in this developmental stage of making everything about you and so when you make everything about you for so long and that's all you know how to do because you weren't properly given the tools or the space or the safety to accept varying degrees of forces coming at you you're always in that fight or flight mode Mm -hmm. and to learn to maybe not have to fight not have to feel like you have to flee Mm -hmm. out of fear for your own life like I look around at the people in my life I look around at my home where we live and all that's come before now and I remind myself I am safe, I have enough food, I have enough love even though God I will never feel like I'm getting enough love (laughs) Mm -hmm. even though I know I have it. Mm -hmm. And so it's always this constant awareness and trying to reconcile and this cognitive dissonance of knowing in my heart I have what I need but still Feeling like I don't or knowing in my head that I have what I need, but part of my heart is still, but if you give me a little more, then I'll really feel good. (laughs) If you give me a little more, then I'll really feel secure. That'll be it. And it's just... It's,
0: it's bottomless if if, if you actually, like, listen to the young part of ourselves. We're still children inside if we
1: yes. have that insecure attachment. We're still trying to. I know.
0: And it's a lot of work also to be in oh a relationship. I mean, to be in a romantic relationship, it takes a long time to, at least in my experience, to actually kind of understand how to do yeah. that <laughs> without, you know, setting it on fire. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so what uh. about, you know, depicting your birth mother, Roberta, on the page. Yeah. Can you talk about how that may have changed
1: over the course of revising your manuscript? The thing that was really interesting about that for me is at first I was just writing about these things that had happened. And then when I would revise, I would try to get in more details. I would really try to put myself there to remember the feeling of it. And because I was still hurt and hadn't processed it, she was still very big, very heavy mm. in, in that that whole space. And over revising the book, I came to a place often of feeling like, this didn't really happen to me, I'm just writing about it, or it's a story now. But it also helped me have so much compassion for her. Mm -hmm. And it helped me, I don't know, understand what she, must have been going through you know it's like i put myself in her shoes a little bit to try to recreate these scenes and i think i i came to love her more where i've always fought her and in my young adult life and my adult life i resented her and i just had this huge sadness about her and after so many revisions and writing and thinking about her and being in that space with her i realized that one thing writing the memoir did was it increased my capacity for forgiveness and all of this really became about you know what this was me being so hurt and so angry because my mom did not mom she did not do what she was supposed to do as far as nurturing me taking care of me and making things safe for me but in writing the book I realized she did her best. And she, and and this strange, strange thing of, I know in my heart that she loved me because she had to. If she thought that killing me was going to save me, she had to love me so much to be willing to even entertain that thought. And it's, it's kind of a weird, <laughs> um, you know, like is that, am I delusional in that (laughs) but I feel like maybe this is a, a, a new way of coping as well I know that she loved me and often we don't always know we don't always we aren't able to reconcile the fact that we were harmed and that person is someone we can't forgive and there's always this this wall and this battle between you know and I, I had to forgive her and mm-hmm. actually I did some EMDR therapy and I had some revelations and there was one part of my therapy where this idea came to me where I was literally on a beach with my first mom and my second mom and they were pulling at me come with me mm-hmm. no come with me no come with me and my mind did this thing where it put me in the water with my first mom. And you know, it's the image of going back to the opening scene in the book and all of these mm. motifs of drowning and being in the water. And in the water with her during this session, we were, we were mother and daughter and, and she was apologizing to me and she was telling me that she loved me oh this is gonna make me cry and you know as much healing as we we've done and I think I don't cry anymore when I tell these stories but this one is still pretty fresh she because this was after I finished the memoir couldn't even put it in the book which I would have loved to but she said you you can let me go now and in that moment of the session when I came out of it it was like all of this guilt all of this this pain and this anger and this wondering that she maybe didn't love me because I abandoned her. It was like she was telling me, it's okay. I love you. I forgive you. And that allowed me to release some of the guilt and to forgive her for everything. And to forgive myself mm. for everything. Because I felt so much of the time like it was all my fault. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, that I didn't expect that, you know, come out of nowhere, but you know, I'll leave it to you to to take us deep. <laughs> <laughs> Crack us oh, all! It. You know, there's
0: this part um, that I think is so important for memoirists as we as we get toward the end of our time together. And it's even one more section I've asked you to read, which I, I hope you're up for it. It's at the very end, is one of them, and you're looking around at your the places where you grew up. And so I wanted to talk about this section briefly because I think it's so striking and relevant for lots of memoirists. Um, so if you could just read that
1: paragraph sure this is from the epilogue where you know the story said and done but we're still kind of I'm in it and I asked my mom this is my my second mom if she wants to come with me to revisit some of the places I lived when I was young and she said yes so we went on a little road trip after standing before the stucco apartment where I'd smashed my left fingers in the wooden door where my mother, brother, and I hid from the outside world, where my mother got better, and then a whole lot worse. I snap a few more photos. I'm a damaged tourist carrying around this longing to exist inside my past. I want to get closer, knock on that door, enter the dark cave of a dwelling, and feel my childhood. Absorb it. Because writing about childhood is cathartic, and I can feel the details of those days leaving me. I want to hold on to them forever. If I let them go, might I be giving the universe permission to erase who I was and all the things that helped make me who I am?
0: Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. You know, you talk in your acknowledgments how it took you about 20 years to complete this memoir, and and now it's been in the world since 2021, and we talked a little bit in the beginning about memory and what you log in your memoir and what you let go and, you know, how important and charged those feelings and memories can be. So I'm wondering... It's kind of a a lot to ask you in these final minutes but <laughs> what if you could just maybe reflect on <laughs> what your perspective is now about how being, you know, I'm thinking about how we're forged from painful events mm-hmm. and and then that part that we let go and then also the erasure of who we were, like we, we become these new versions of ourselves, which kind of erases potentially, you know, you could imagine, you know, this past that we came from where we were forged. But I'm wondering what your perspective is now on how those interplay the, the way that we were created, letting go, holding on to who we are and what made us and how that all kind of comes together.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it is interesting, an interesting question, interesting to think about, but I wonder if most people do want to feel proud of where they come from. And if you are a child of trauma, when you look back, you want to deny where you came from. But, and and for so long I refused to believe it. You know, I had had my therapist tell me, your your childhood was terrifying and horrifying. And I was like, no, (laughs) no, everybody has a childhood. I mean, everybody's got something. And being, Forced to face it and to own it was so huge for me uh, because I don't care who you are. If you have trauma, sooner or later it catches up to you. You know, it's like it's waiting mm-hmm. for you, just around the corner, almost as if it knows you knows you need to process it, as if mm-hmm. it's trying to help you heal. And you're like, no, stay away, stay away. You hurt me, but it wants to help you. And so, in writing this memoir, it was such a weird feeling because I knew I needed to get the story out and I wanted to, but then there was this feeling of saudade, you know, this nostalgia of, of knowing that I can never be back there, I can never have these feelings again and why would I want to? Why would I want to relive my childhood, but I want to cling to my, my mom, my brother, all of this because it has made me who I am. And there is I mean, this is weird, but a sort of pride that comes with having survived that tra- traumatic childhood. If you can process it and use it to, to feel empowered, to remind yourself of how strong, how resilient you've been. And, you know, writing that memoir, I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of that of having written a book at all. That's a, wonderful for anybody to do. That's an amazing feat, I think, let alone a book that lays my soul bare for the world to see, that has all of my, my deepest fears in it. And but the truth is, now that that book is out, I, <laughs> that book, <laughs> now yeah. that the book is out, <laughs> you know, I have forgotten some of the painful details. And part of what I wanted is true, that writing the book was going to give me a catalyst a means to kind of shed some of those painful details that I was carrying and now the book carries them and they're not as heavy for me anymore Mm. and you know my childhood it happened and this is what I've become because of it and in spite of it and I feel if I can just remember, look at how far I've come. Look at me and my adversity, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not erased. I'm reinforced. And it oh. feels right. Like, it's about damn time, right? Wow. Yes. That's.
0: I love how you put that. Do you have advice, last words of advice for uh, writers working on their memoirs that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think first of all, if your story is nagging at you, write it. You've got to try. But I hope that memoirists in training will understand, try to understand the reasons they're writing. And once those reasons are clarified, then the book can serve its purpose. And you'll see whether you must finish the memoir or whether you must stop. I think writing the memoir and finishing the memoir. As a means to an end just to finish it because you started it that doesn't necessarily serve you and Mm -hmm. writing memoir is so consuming and you must write it with your whole heart Mm -hmm. otherwise you're gonna cheat yourself out of the experience and you stand to cheat the reader as well Mm -hmm. you know the other thing I would say is if you're writing memoir Try to learn everything you can about how to craft it. You know, I'm a big fan of memoirs that do the genre justice by going (laughs) powerfully deep into the memoirist's experience because it's about humanness at its core. And I, I, I want to be taken deep. And so many memoirists, they're still dealing with that trauma, rightfully so, and they haven't learned yet or they haven't given themselves... The time or the space to really peel away the layers and dig deep, like an onion, right? The story mm-hmm. of our past, of our trauma, we are like an onion. And I i hope anyone writing memoir will dig as deeply as they can to get to the heart of the story and not just tell us what happened, but to let us feel it. Mm-hmm what are some of your favorite memoirs or the memoirs that you look to that that have done this? Well, I think this is one that a lot of people mention a lot, Um, The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. And uh, another one that I don't think a lot of people have read that when I talk to them is Grand by Sarah Schaefer and Blackout by Sarah Heppola, Lovesick by Sue William Silverman and... um, even eat, pray, love, you know, I, I mm-hmm. gravitate toward these memoirs that I feel will show me a little bit of myself, show me sides of myself or help me understand ideas about who I am or who I am trying to be. And so I've typically gravitated toward memoirs written by women and the, their female experience. And but I'm trying to expand. You know, at one point, it mm-hmm. dawned on me like I haven't read any memoirs by marginalized groups or even by men. Like I'm just all one note. And now I'm trying to read fiction because I'm writing fiction and we got to know our our yeah. comps you know we have to know who else has books that our book might be like so that we can write those query letters <laughs> yes
0: yes oh gosh that's a whole nother that's another topic right <laughs> that's right um sometimes the marketing of books and memoirs and fiction and the querying it gives me the heebie-jeebies oh. so I like to compartmentalize and just bask in the creative process here but I know that I am bringing some episodes this season about oh, great. Like, brass tacks so yeah yeah and so <laughs> Leslie, where, where can people find you? Where's the best place for people to connect with you?
1: Well, on my website, I've got everything that you could want to know, um, all my links and everything, and that's lesliefergusonauthor.com. Cool all right well what can i say
0: i mean you have given me so much of yourself and such a look into your writing process and how you've become who you are and i knew you would and you exceeded my expectations Mm. and i want to thank you so much for being my guest
1: thank you so much this was uh i didn't you know it was a um how long have we been here now Uh, almost an hour of i didn't know i needed you know, I actually did start to cry a little bit. I got really choked up remembering that. And uh, I, it's good for me to remember that if and when I need to cry, that is my body saying, you need to release something. Go ahead and cry. And so after that moment of getting choked up, man, I feel like a million bucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for having well, me Well, I'm happy
1: I was able to provide that <laughs> chance
0: for you. That's, thank you so uh, much. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.